0: The singer-writer-producer Pharrell Williams had a smash hit titled Happy that released in 2013. This was the first song to take first place in six singular format Nielsen BDS-based Billboard Airplay charts, making him a musical crossover king. In this episode, I'm going to tell you about a sports crossover king that holds a status that only he can claim, and it all revolves around the gridiron and baseball. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. Great Scott. So this time as we step up for DeLorean, the date is October 31st nineteen hundred, and we are in Catesville, Missouri. The hero of a story this time is going to be Robert Calvin Hubbard, who was the most feared lineman of his time. His father was Robert P. Hubbard, and his mother was Sarah Sally Ford. His father was a farmer, so, you know, growing up, he knew hard work, and he was used to this kind of small school, small town, and, you know, just a country boy trying to survive. But, speaking of surviving, he, uh, a little school that he went to, he only had 30 students in his school, and he would graduate from Keatsville High School. But, in the between there, he attended a nearby Glasgow High School for one year, because his local school did not have any football. And he loved football as a kid. In fact, he was, at the age of 14, already 200 pounds. So, I mean, this is a big dude. At 14, nowadays, is pretty big if you're 200 pounds, but, Back then, in the 1900s, that's like just the early 1900s, That's crazy. And after graduating over there at Keatsville High School, he would uh, get on to college. And uh, an article from the State Historical Society of Missouri stated that since he could not attend West Point because of his flat feet, Hubbard looked for a college that had a program near home. He decided to enroll in Chillicothe Business College. And I'll include a link to this website where you can see a picture of Cal with the uh, Chillicothe Business College football team. And uh, by the way, you can find the show notes over at thefootballhistorydude.com. And also, why don't you make sure you mash that little subscribe button on your podcast player of choice so you get the hottest freshest off the press episodes each and every week. But getting back to his college days, he did not spend a whole lot of time there at Chillicothe Business College because in 1922, he would meet a gentleman by the name of Alvin Bo McMillan, who was a college All-American quarterback and coach for Centenary College in Shreveport, Louisiana. Now, McMillan had at the time called Hubbard what he saw as the greatest football he had ever known, and that was college or the pro ranks. So, of course, um, Mr. Cal Hubbard wanted to go ahead and follow Bo McMillan because he had believed in him so much. He would go to the Centenary College there in Shreveport, Louisiana, and play with Bo from 1922 to 1924, as a star player. Now, at this time, it stated that he was six foot two inches and 250 pounds. Now, this is a huge specimen back in the 1920s. But what was even more impressive? They said that he ran 100 yards in 11 seconds. Now, dude, that was just an insane spark freak score. If you're that big at the time to be able to run that fast, so can't imagine the legend. You know, the Paul Bunyan. Sometimes, you know, the publicity documents stated that he was six foot five inches. So I don't really know for sure what was the truth, but on the Proof Football Hall of Fame, he was listed at six foot two inches and 250 pounds. But again, the legend of Paul Bunyan, which must have just been blown out of proportion to which, when you figured you got to play against this guy, you're probably shaking in your britches a little bit, getting kind of scared. But he would only play there from, like I said, 1922 to 1924. Then he would follow Bo McMillan. To Geneva College in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. Now, unfortunately, he had to sit out the nineteen twenty-five season due to Geneva's eligibility rules. You know, he must have maybe got there too late or something like that. But he would return in nineteen twenty-six to play for the Geneva College. Now in this year, he helped Geneva to a historic win over Harvard, which at the time was a powerhouse team. Now they beat him sixteen to seven, which wasn't like a Dominating performance, but when you're that massive of an underdog, it's kind of like a you know Division three school. There's something going into a D one class. Of, I don't know, University of Michigan, Ohio State, Alabama, that kind of thing, and you know putting a whooping up to them, even if it's only by eight or nine points, in their house. So yeah, it was a big deal at the time. But then he would move on to the professional ranks. He would sign with the New York Giants as a rookie for the 1927 season. And to give you a perspective of the impact that he had on his rookie season, the Pro Football Hall of Fame website said that he made a good Giants team great. Now, the Giants at the time had a plethora of tackles, so they would inevitably move him to the end position on offense and then linebacker on defense, where he kind of pioneered the modern day middle linebacker position. And uh, to kind of give you a perspective, again, of the impact that he had there on that 1927 rookie season, let's go to the official NFL records, which didn't really uh, start happening until after the 1932 season, so a lot of the stuff before 1932 is a little bit hazy. However, the fewest points allowed in a season, kind of like the rundown goes as such, the third place team was Detroit in 1934, where they only let up 59 points the entire season. The second place team was Brooklyn in 1933. Now, they only let up 54 points. and the first place team, the 1932 Chicago Bears, they only gave up 44 points in the entire season. But let's go to 1927, taking you back here in the DeLorean. The Giants behind Cal Hubbard and the other Hall of Famer on the team, Steve Owen. They would play 13 games in 1927. And of those 13 games, 10 times. They shot out the team. They shot out the other team. Zero points. Zilch, zada, nada. You ain't getting past this line. That 1927 team, remember, I told you, the official record, 1932 Chicago Bears, they gave up 44 points. But in 1927, the New York Giants only gave up in 13 games 20 total points, en route to, of course, winning their first NFL title. And Cal Hubbard, who played middle linebacker and pioneer at the position, was at the center of it all. But he would only play for the Giants for two seasons. And he won all league both times. But, like we said at the beginning of the episode, this dude, small town boy, he did not like the big city lights. So he requested to be traded to the Green Bay Packers so he could get out of the big city. And Curly Lambeau was all like, yeah, sure, <laughs> give me another free square on the NFL bingo card because I'll take him whenever you got them. Um, Now, we already compared Curly Lambeau you know, the curly one, to uh, Mr. Billy B, Billy Belichick, the hooded one. So I'm like, why do teams keep helping the Patriots out and just basically giving players away for free? But it sounds like the curly one had the same thing. He's like, sure, if you want to go ahead and trade this all-world middle linebacker stuffing guy who helps lead your team to only letting up 20 points in 13 games, sure, bring him on. I'll take him. And this is before the NFL draft. So it's not like he was trading away a whole bunch of draft picks or anything like that to be able to get this stud all-world, linebacker tackle, offensive lineman, whatever it is, because he can, you know, he's very versatile. Which Curley said, you know what, get some back there, I'll take him. And he moved him back to his natural tackle spot where he was in college, which then he would proceed to help the Green Bay Packers win NFL championships in his first three years while he was there in 1929, 1930, and, 1931. and overall he played a total of nine seasons in the NFL. Of these nine seasons, he was named to the All-NFL Team six seasons, from 1928 to 1933. He was also named to the All-Time NFL Team as a tackle in 1969. So, of course, you know, he played for the great Curly Lambeau, and he played for Steve Owen, and he was with the Packers and Giants, but he also played for the Pittsburgh Pirates, which later would become the Pittsburgh Steelers. In the meantime, he, you know, he of course, he was great, so he would be inducted to the College Football Hall of Fame in 1962. And then in 1963, like we've talked about in most of the previous episodes, was the Pro Football Hall of Fame's inaugural class. Of course, yep, Cal Hubbard's there. He was inducted to that class and given just one more achievement. But when asked about his achievements, uh, there's a kind of a little quote that he had that it went as such. I'm just a big old country boy who hated to sit on the sidelines. I wanted to be in the middle of the action, and in the middle of the action, he was sitting there in tackle, middle linebacker, offensive guard, whatever it may be. He's right there on the offense or defensive side, which, again, like we talked about before, he was a true 60-minute player. He ain't getting no reps. He ain't getting no breaks. He's just sitting there every single time. He's on the field, and he's contributing to winning a victory, to winning a championship, which, of course, like we talked about, he helped the Giants and then the Packers for those three seasons. But then at some point in time, you you gotta figure you're gonna retire. And here's a quote that kind of summed up from him why he decided to retire. And it went as such. I've taken enough beatings for one man. Not that I couldn't take some more. It's not fat nor rage that's driving me out. I've just had enough shoving and kicking around. Now, he also was a coach. 1934, he coached the Texas A&M University. And then he would go back to his alma mater, Geneva College, from 1941 to 1942 to be their head coach. All the while, now this is something we didn't talk about, kind of reverting back to the beginning of the episode where we talked about a crossover sport and revolving around baseball. Now, in 1928, Cal decided to start picking up another professional sport. In the off season, he would umpire minor league baseball games. And on a certain particular website, I don't want to give it away yet because that's kind of the the catch here, uh, it's speculated that he had a 2010 vision, which it's like, what, an eagle or a hawk or something? What do you got going on there? And he had an obvious size advantage that made him, let's just say, effective as an umpire because, just imagine, you get a strike call on you and you turn around and you want to argue that call, but it's like that normal dude in the WWF back in the day looking up and facing, whoa, that's Andre the Giant. Okay, sure, strike it was, I'm going to go sit over there. But he also knew the rules to no end, and they said that the players, the coaches, administrators, the fans, they were all very impressed at how well he understood the rules of the game. Like I said, he had a keen eye, supposedly twenty ten vision. And speaking of a keen eye, how about you show your vision for a perfect lineup on DraftKings by signing up today? Envision your own team's dominance by heading to the slash DraftKings for a free entry your chance at glory. Again, that's thefootballhistorydude.com slash DraftKings. But getting back to baseball and his umpire. Now, although he had an intimidating size, it was said that he did not toss out that many players. And a quote kind of explaining the reasoning behind this from uh, Cal Hubbard himself goes as such The best umpire is one who can handle a difficult situation and keep players in the game. However, you've got to know the rules. But like I said, he was known as a guy himself. Knew the rules, which is one reason why in 1936 he was called up to umpire games in the American League. Now, this is the big leagues, the majors, where he would become an umpire for 16 seasons. He would also officiate four World Series and three different All Star games. The only reason why he only had 16 seasons was because in on 1951, during a hunting trip, a ricocheting pellet from another hunter's shotgun would injure one of his eyes. So he was no longer able to umpire because he didn't have that perfect vision anymore. But the American League recognized that he had a unique perspective of the game as well as a knowledge of which could not be compared. And he had the respect from the other umpires in the league. So the American League was quick to scoop him back up. They made him an assistant supervisor of the umpires. Then in 1953 they made him the supervisor basically of all the umpires. Course, this story has to keep going on. And in 1958, they appointed him the umpire in chief of the American League. So he was this dominating football player on the fields. Now he's transitioned into professional baseball as an umpire who was making all the great calls. But then he has an injury, and he's not going to stop there. He goes into basically management and administration, where he ends up serving a 17 year tenure. As a supervisor of the umpires Where among many other things He established clearly defined roles and field positions He also helped Emmett Ashford Become the first African American umpire to work in the major leagues With that being said Cal Hubbard passed away on October 17th 1977 At the age of 76 Fortunately, he was alive when he was inducted To the Professional Baseball Hall of Fame in 1976 However, the most interesting fact is that he is the only person in history to be inducted to both the Professional Football and Baseball Hall of Fame. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Football History Dude, and were able to gain some knowledge nuggets of one of the most versatile professional sports contributors of all time. In the next episode, we're going to cover another member of the inaugural Pro Football Hall of Fame class of 1963, Earl Dutch Clark. But for now, dudes, I'm through if you're through thank you for listening to this episode of the football history dude to make sure you're the first to get the next episode please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to the for the show notes and more information on the history of the nfl and remember dudes where we're going we don't need roads